If you're looking for another surprising investigation into the criminal justice system, check out Bear Brook from New Hampshire Public Radio, hosted by me, Jason Moon. Bear Brook is back with a new season and a new case. Jason Carroll is serving life in prison for a murder he says he didn't commit. More than 30 years later, is it still possible to get to the truth? And who gets to tell it? Listen to the complete second season of Bear Brook, now available wherever you get your podcasts. Jenna here, and I'm excited to share with you one of my favorite podcasts, which recently came back for its sixth season, The Uncertain Hour. The Uncertain Hour is an award-winning podcast from Marketplace, where host Chrissy Clark dives into the obscure policies and forgotten histories that explain who gets ahead in the U.S. and who gets left behind. And if that doesn't sound fascinating enough, the series was featured on Last Week Tonight with John Oliver. This season, Chrissy investigates the for-profit companies that run many of America's welfare offices and how they're cashing in on work requirements for welfare recipients. Listen to The Uncertain Hour wherever you get your podcasts. Now to a manhunt underway after the stabbing death of a man in Brooklyn that is being investigated as a possible anti-gay hate crime. On July 29, 2023, 28-year-old O'Shea Sibley was stabbed to death at a gas station in a crime that bears striking similarity to the murder of Sakia Gunn 20 years ago. A professional dancer, O'Shea was a figure in New York's ballroom scene and a student at the Alvin Ailey American Dance Theater. According to police, O'Shea and his friends pulled into a Brooklyn service station around 11 p.m. His friends who were with him say, O'Shea was dancing to Beyonce's Renaissance as they filled up the car. An eyewitness says Sibley was confronted by a group who yelled homophobic slurs. Police reviewing this surveillance video appearing to show a heated exchange between the two groups. Much like Sakia's murder, O'Shea was killed with a single stab wound. Security cameras capture his friends gathering around him, as Sakia's friends did at the corner of Broad and Market. Similarly, O'Shea's friends in a desperate attempt to save his life, rushed him to the nearest hospital, where, like Sakia, he was pronounced dead. The similarities between how Sakia Gunn and O'Shea Sibley were murdered are inescapably familiar. Both crimes illustrate the heartbreaking life cycle of a queer death. The news breaks. The community comes together to mourn. Outrage begins to build. People demand attention for the victim. The circumstances that led to the death are scrutinized. Politicians and civic leaders make public pronouncements and promises. The anger begins to dissipate. Most people return to their daily lives. They turn away from the death with a fresh dose of post-traumatic pain. The victim's name is ultimately added to the list of people taken too soon. Until the next tragedy hits. We have to keep stoking those fires and letting people know, you know, your foot is on my neck. Please stop. You know, we have to demand, you know, the right to be able to stand up without someone's foot on our necks. That's Charles Barak, director of Dreams Deferred, the Sakia Gunn story. 
He believes that the notion of perceived resiliency to repeated trauma can actually be detrimental to marginalized people. So I think there's a double-edged sword when we talk about resiliency, because, you know, resiliency basically means that you've survived, right? That you've survived your worst days. But because you can doesn't mean you should or that you should have to. While both Sakia and O'Shea's cases involved the interruption and termination of queer Black joy, at the time of our recording, O'Shea's case seems to have garnered more media attention with over 50 news stories dedicated to his case in one week after his murder. That compared to the eight stories in the 11 months after Sakia was killed. When Sakia was killed 20 years ago, Newark's queer community demanded attention to their unique challenges. As also a majority Black community, it found indifference from the public. Meanwhile, in 2023, O'Shea's killing in Brooklyn put a spotlight on hate crimes against the LGBTQ community, set against increasingly violent rhetoric and legislation against them nationwide. O'Shea's case also has the benefit of social media activism. As news organizations were still confirming their stories before going to press, security camera footage of a group of young men confronting and then attacking O'Shea and his friends was making the rounds on social media. Even gaining the attention of Beyonce herself, who pushed O'Shea's name into a trending story. Sakia's childhood friend Terrell Addy, who now works in law enforcement, says that level of instant reach can be a blessing and a curse in bias and hate crime cases. It's the social media that like, we can easily like obtain nudes, but that's also the bad part about it too, because I think it kind of stood out for a lot of us because we were physically there. And then also news was actually like really news back then. Like now you get some news and then, you know, five minutes later, you're on something different and we forget so much. Sakia's case did garner responses from local government and civic leaders, like former Newark Mayor Sharp James, who in the aftermath of her killing promised to create an LGBT safe space for Newark's youth, something that never materialized under his leadership. Former Mayor, now Senator Cory Booker, raised the pride flag at City Hall, but it wasn't until the very end of his term that the Newark Pride Center was opened, a decade after Sakia's murder. And during those interim years, as the rallies began to die down, as the teenagers who knew Sakia began to graduate from high school and eventually leave Newark, it was up to a small group of activists to turn their collective trauma into resiliency, a responsibility filmmaker Charles Barak says can carry a heavy burden. Because otherwise, people will let it slip back into, you know, the background and say everything is okay. We have to keep telling these stories because otherwise, the silence becomes normalized. And we can't let that happen. You know, I mean, taking from the the AIDS movement, you know, silence equals death. You know? But even as online activism pushes and drives the news cycle, there are still countless stories of queer death that don't garner the attention of O'Shea Sibley or Sakia Gunn's death. Stories 
like the death of Ashley Moore in Newark. On April 1st of 2020, early in the COVID pandemic, Ashley Moore, a 26-year-old trans woman, was found dead outside a Newark YMCA where she was staying. Ashley's death was initially ruled a suicide, either by jumping off the building roof or getting hit by a car, despite having strangulation marks on her neck. A witness at the Y reported seeing Ashley flee her room in the early morning hours, and camera footage outside the building indicated there were no cars that could have hit her. For Beatrice Simpkins, executive director of the Newark LGBTQ Center, Ashley's death was a harsh reminder of how some queer deaths are still swept under the rug of public consciousness. Her mother didn't find out her child had died until she went to her Instagram page to wish her a happy birthday and kept seeing all these messages from her friends talking about rest in peace. Beatrice says Ashley's mother, Starlet Carbons, reached out to her through the LGBTQ Center to find out not only what happened, but how to claim her child's body. She didn't have a death certificate for her. It was just a mess. And she, she never had an official word from the police. She had to contact them. They didn't contact her. And so we got involved to find out what happened to Ashley because Ashley was found laying in front of the Y on the sidewalk. Beatrice says she reached out to the Newark Police Safety Director to ask why none of the queer-centered organizations in the city, like the Newark LGBTQ Center, were notified that a trans woman was found dead on the sidewalk so they could alert members. She says it wasn't until she initiated contact that action began to be taken. He was like, yeah, there's, there's traffic cameras all around there. They should be able to pull the films and find out exactly what happened. And so the traffic camera panned in front of the building. You don't see anything. And then when it came back, Ashley was laying on the ground. So, so we still don't know exactly what happened to Ashley. But eventually the, re, the case was reinvestigated by the Essex County Prosecutor's Office. She says once the city's queer organizations began working with the police department, they were able to see police body camera footage, which did prove that once Ashley was found, an ambulance was called, CPR was attempted, and she was eventually pronounced dead at University Hospital. But in Ashley's case, there was no public outcry. They just assumed, oh, you know, another dead trans person. That was it. That's how we felt. Another dead black trans woman. Oh, well, you know, we, we don't have the resources for that. And I understand it was during COVID. I get that. But um, just the way the investigation was handled, then there was rumors from, from the other residents of the Y that Essie had someone come see her that evening, that she was waiting on someone. Exactly what led to the death of Ashley Moore is still unclear. Beatrice says they were unable to return Ashley's remains to her family and fundraised to connect them with an investigating attorney. But she's lost track of where things stand now, as Ashley's family, understandably, asked for privacy after learning of her death. I know some people who have gotten out of here definitely during COVID and have established themselves in friendlier uh, LGBTQ cities. That is, that is sure, uh, surely happened. Uh, and it probably will continue to happen. It's that very resignation that filmmaker Charles Barack hopes to contextualize with his work. Matthew Shepard was a household name and continues to be, period. 
And so that's what I wanted to illustrate is like, you know, how can this one story get such um, exposure and then all these other stories get almost nothing? In the absence of full examination of these stories, we can miss a through line in many LGBTQ plus hate crimes, patriarchal violence. Defined by the Southern Poverty Law Center as an interconnected system of beliefs and behaviors that harms everyone who is gender oppressed. Patriarchal violence impacts women and LGBTQ plus folks, but also men who are viewed as not fulfilling their masculine gender roles. It can go by many names, misogyny, homophobia, and of course, toxic masculinity. It's the insidious part of societies across the globe that seeks to maintain the hold on power for some while actively and often violently oppressing others. It's arguably what pushed Richard McCullough to escalate the confrontation he had with Sakia, her best friend Valencia, and the other teenage girls to the stabbing that cost Sakia her life and led to Richard spending nearly two decades of his life behind bars. From an Iraq war cover-up to towns ravaged by opioids to the roots of our modern immigration crisis, Embedded explores what's been sealed off and undisclosed. NPR's original investigative podcast reveals why these stories and the people behind them matter. Listen to the Embedded podcast only from NPR. Uncover from CBC Podcasts brings you award-winning investigations year-round. Infiltrate an international network of neo-Nazi extremists. He ranted with racist language. Discover the true story of the CIA's attempts at mind control. Their objective was to wipe my memory. Or dig into a crypto king's mysterious death and a quarter billion dollars missing. There are deep oddities in this case. With Episodes Weekly... Uncover is your home for in-depth reporting and exceptional storytelling. Find Uncover wherever you get your podcasts. In all of the interviews I conducted for this series, nearly all of my subjects who identified as queer noted when they first came in contact with toxic masculinity, usually as a criticism of their own behavior. I grew up being called a sissy. I don't remember a time when I didn't get called a sissy, you know, and I always tell people that I was uh, a sissy before I was a homosexual and I was a homosexual before I was gay and I was gay before I was queer. So in other words, when you're five, six, seven, eight or nine um, and you're being called a a sissy, you know, people are putting something on you that you don't really have any understanding of. So they're talking about um, your gender expression or performance um, at that point, you know, because at that point, you're not thinking about sexualities. For Charles, he didn't begin to have any understanding of his sexual orientation until he was a teen and found out that while there was a community of other queer young men in his 1970s Chicago neighborhood, they weren't welcomed as their full selves everywhere. I mean, I had pressed hair, you know, I had pierced ears, um, you know, I was dipping and doing, you know, I, I felt lovely. And there was a lot of effeminate black gay men going to that church, right? 
but you just didn't talk about it. So the homophobia in the black community where I experienced it was just about being silenced. And basically they, what they do is they erase us from that history. Charles eventually found community and safe spaces in his own neighborhood, even though he and his LGBTQ plus friends were underground. He says as time passed and queer kids became more open and straight society slowly became more accepting, he found the bravery of kids like Sakia inspiring. You know, I just wish I could have met that kid. And, you know, I mean, I do know Valencia, um, you know, who is also, you know, masculine performing. I guess I, I feel like a little emotional because for them to have that agency to say, you know, that I'm going to reject what I'm supposed to be and be who I feel like I am is really very profound, you know, for somebody that young. And like, you know, I had it too, to know that that wasn't exclusive to us, that people did it before us and people did it after us, um, really kind of centered me in a way, you know, um, and kind of organized my thinking around how to tell this story. Um, because it was something that seemed so essential, so right, and so available and organic to these young aggressives, you know, these young girls that were performing masculinity and just, you know, and being all in themselves. But what does it mean to perform masculinity? Many of Sakia's friends said they thought she was a boy when they first met her. And Valencia Bailey, Sakia's best friend, says the two are proud of how their masculine presentation and comfort in their sexuality gave them a swagger that rivaled most of the boys at school. We was everywhere. We talking sound like we was the ones that the girls wanted. Ooh, wow, yeah. Like, we were popular. Like, honestly, we were, we were popular then. Valencia says at school, the boys had no choice but to recognize that Sakia and Valencia's game or their ability to attract other girls was something to be admired and maybe learn from. It was different. And- yeah, like, it, 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 it was all different. It's always going to be different because we know what... A- I hate to say it like this, and it's not true that all women know what women want because every woman is different, but me and my cousin is so observant. You know what I mean? You, you could pick up on anything from a woman, so it's like... It, it was always easier for us. Oh, it's always easier because people don't realize the ways a woman's trying to make her laugh. It's the most easiest thing to make a woman feel comfortable with. Who can make her laugh and just let her guard down, just relax, just a genuine laugh? You're already halfway there. Valencia says their innate understanding of how it was more important to make a crush feel seen and appreciated rather than ogled or manipulated gave them an advantage even with straight girls. Because... As she put it, making a girl feel genuinely happy could outweigh societal norms. Because we wasn't like, the, wasn't like, like, I know I have a feminine voice, but it's, it's not a feminine, like, face face where it's like so, so feminine. My cousin ain't, she has a feminine face, but it's not too feminine. You know what I mean? And like, we look like one of the guys, but we're cuter than the guys because we're females. High school game aside, 
What's also known is the night Sakia died, she was stepping into a traditionally masculine role, this time to intervene and protect the femme girls she and Valencia were with from the come-ons of the older men in the car. Beecher says that can be a dangerous space for many young lesbians, especially those who see themselves in the more masculine or butch roles in the relationships. Even in her own life, Beecher's describes feeling pressure to perform the traditionally masculine role of protector. I'm a very mature lesbian, and I had a woman I was dating recently who got upset with me for not confronting someone at four o'clock in the morning in the dark when I was safely in, in the house, right? And this person came up the driveway. I had left my car door unlocked. And so they in that, in that particular neighborhood, that was one of the crimes people go by. It was like a nuisance crime, you know, running through people's cars. So she wakes me up. Oh, there's somebody in your car. So my first thought is, well, I'm not going outside because when I go outside, I'm not safe, right? It had nothing to do with my gender or anything like that. I, if I was a man with a penis, I wouldn't have went outside, okay? <laughs> I just wouldn't have done it. I'm safer in the house. Um, so I got a flashlight. And I shined the flashlight through the window into the car. When the guy saw the flashlight, he ran off. I was basically uh, braced up about the fact that I didn't go outside and, you know, snatch this person out of my car at four o'clock in the morning in the dark. Now, I'm safe. You're safe. My car's fine. But you wanted to see me, you know, do this whole, you know, oh, oh thing. Why? Because that's dangerous to me. <laughs> But that's part yeah. of the performance. It's the performance, right? It's the pressure to perform, to be much, to pick up the heavy item, to you know break your back carrying stuff. I mean, even in, in, in our churches, it's so funny. The the masculine lesbians are the are the most macho people in the room. <laughs> Looking back on Sakia's legacy, it's the nuance of that gender performance that seems to have gotten lost in the shuffle. From headlines like New Jersey teen killed after revealing her sexuality, to New Jersey teen killed because of sexual orientation, the story of Sakia has often been reduced to the violent oppression of her identity. But in making that simplification, we lose much of who Sakia was. She was, they she were was fun. exactly alike. She fun. was loving to crack jokes off mm, of the day, mm. just like me. Like, you know what I mean? Um, she didn't judge. Like, I don't judge. You know what I mean? Yes. That night at the intersection of Broad and Market, the girls make it abundantly clear that they were lesbians and not interested in anything Richard McCullough had to offer them. But by Valencia's recollection, it wasn't their sexuality that crossed the line in Richard's mind. Like, yo, I said, come here. Then he says, yo, I said, I said, come here. My cousin says, I don't have to come to you. You're not my father. Which is true. We don't. I don't have to come to you. I ain't got to come to you. You're not my father. I guess he felt some type of way about that. Because he turns around to go, you know, like, look like he about to, you know, go be finished getting in the car. But he closes the door. He lifts up his shirt and pulls out a switchblade. Whips it out and runs up on my cousin and grabs her by her neck. It was the fact that they dared to be defiant and challenge his masculinity, his manhood. The thing that our society taught him was to be preserved above all else. 
even Sakia's life. That night, Sakia joined a long list of victims who fell to patriarchal violence. But by reducing her memory to only her victimhood, we lose the fact that she was actively part of queer resistance. Queer resistance, in its simplest terms, is the act of refusal. Refusal to be marginalized. Refusal to be pushed back into the shadows like so many generations past were forced to do just to survive. When Richard McCullough was rejected by the girls, he sought to intimidate them, and Sakia refused. And looking at what happened out in Midwood, Brooklyn, I can see the same pattern playing out in the murder of O'Shea Sibley. It wasn't just the fact that O'Shea was unapologetically gay and dancing. It was the fact that he and his friends didn't back down when accosted. What started as an act of joy turned into an act of resistance, as word of his killing spread to queer folks across the country, who, in my opinion, are simply less willing to let injustices like this go in 2023. Because after all, the lessons learned from Sakia's story only matter if we build from them and push for a society that is safer for everyone. At Sakia's 20th anniversary memorial service outside the Project WOW Center in Newark, director Kevin Taylor spoke on Sakia's legacy. Somebody say but. In that moment, Sakia Gunn became an icon. She became legacy. She woke Newark the hell up. We woke up. No more, oh, I'll just go over to the city and party and come back here to live. If we're going to live here, we got to be here. And if we're going to be here, we got to tell people, all of them, mamas and daddies on buses, dudes rolling up beside girls at, at midnight, you don't get to decide who we are. I'm going to fight. For Sakia Gun, I will keep talking. And if somebody don't like it, God bless For Sakia Gun, we stand, we speak. Say your name! And in front of the gas station in Brooklyn, where O'Shea Sibley lost his life, someone wrote, If black queer people can't even dance without fear of violence, none of us are free. After Broad and Market was co-produced by the WNET groups Chasing the Dream and LWC Studios. I'm Jenna Flanagan, the lead reporter, producer, and host. Aaron McIntyre is the executive producer. Daniel Greenberg is the executive in charge of production. Juleka Lantigua is the series editor. Paulina Velasco is the managing editor. Shant Alexander is the associate producer. Cindy Rodriguez and Chelsea Rugg are producers. Michelle Baker is an associate producer. Elizabeth Nakano mixed this episode. Kate Gallagher is the fact checker. Kojin Tashiro is lead sound designer. Cover art designed by Karen Brazell. Original mural art by Tatiana Bazalizadeh. The legal consultants are Marta Castang and Matt Clark. For Chasing the Dream, Eugenia Harvey is the executive producer. Maria Stoyan is the senior producer. Catherine Carpenter is a producer, and Shannon Damiano is the production assistant. Audience engagement provided by Lindsay Horvitz.
Major funding for Chasing the Dream is provided by the JPB Foundation with additional funding from Sue and Edgar Wackenheim III.